Bola boss, you pos-filled altans. Welcome to the Blind Buy podcast. I'm over in Portugal. I'm in Porto, doing some writing. But I have a fantastic guest this week, who I spoke to recently in Waterford. His name is Michael Harding. He's someone I really look up to. He's a writer, storyteller, he's a philosopher. He's published loads of books in his career, fiction and non-fiction. He used to be the writer-in-residence in the Abbey Theatre and in Trinity College. He trained to be a priest and then left that vocation to become a Buddhist for 17 years. He's someone who connects with spirituality through art. And he's someone who I'd look up to as an elder, I suppose you'd say. And we had a cracker of a chat in a beautiful theatre in Waterford that had the most magnificent sound. You wouldn't even think there was an audience there. And we spoke about Christianity, Buddhism, poetry, literature and the suffering of being alive. He has a new book out at the moment called All the Things Left Unsaid and he's also on tour, touring this book in theatres up and down the country and if you want to see his dates go to michaelharding.ie and you see all his gigs in one place which is something I should start doing to be honest. So before I get into the chat, he speaks about a story that I read out. So before this live gig, I debuted a new short story about a man who rescues an abused donkey. So that's what he's speaking about at the start of this. I can't show it to you obviously over the podcast because it's a brand new short story but it will be out this year. Without further ado, here's my chat with Michael Harding. How are you getting on? I'm all right. I'm not great. You're not great, no? I know. How I'm come? N- I'm never well. <laughs> My life is about failures one after another. I had great compassion for your donkey. <laughs> I was feeling like that sitting outside in the wings. <laughs> it's a beautiful story. Thank you very much, Michael. Yeah. I mean, it really is very powerful. And there's the donkey and the father, there's two kind of images in it, you know? Yeah. And you struggling between the two. It's so beautiful. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, um, I, w- I want to say before, you know, before this goes anywhere, um, I am so lucky to be here. I'm so... Like, I haven't been on a stage for about four years because I wasn't well. Uh, but I'm so lucky to be here because I'm here with you. And you're here with Blind Boy. And I listen to this man, and he is, he is such a consummate artist. He is astonishing and what he's been doing and the kind of way that he's broken ground in storytelling has been amazing. I, I, I'm so honoured to be here. I'm so delighted Thank you very much, here. Michael. Um, yeah. What I'd love to start asking you about is, um, like, so you are also a writer. You've, you're a playwright. You've written novels. You write non-fiction. You've had a crack at all the different mm. forms. And... One thing I always wonder with, even myself as a writer, is for me to write something that feels authentic, I have to bring a little bit of myself in there. So, yeah. like, I've never rescued a donkey. 
or done that. <laughs> no, the, the donkey story is true. Yeah. My, um, there's two things. My art teacher in school, he literally did that. He saw a donkey getting abused and he brought it into his tiny car and then brought it to school and was like, yeah. what the fuck is the teacher doing with a donkey in his car? <laughs> and then it's also based on uh, Frederick Nietzsche. Yeah. He went mad when he witnessed a horse being beaten. Yeah. So that was in my head. But the stuff about the father, that's my experience at the age of 20 with my father who had a brain tumour. Yeah. Now it's not, I didn't want to not visit him, but the, the feeling in that story was, it's a terrifying thing for someone you love, for their brain to change to the point yeah. that I'm looking at the body and I don't know who this is. Especially when they can be angry or the worst one for me is when I see my dad and it's like, he doesn't know who the fuck I am. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And the not knowing who I am expressed itself as, I felt like I was serving him tea in a restaurant. Yeah. He knew there was a person, but he was being polite to me. Yeah. And that felt sadder than when he was being angry. It's that's like, right, you're, yeah. you're being polite to me? Like, like you've just met me, like I'm, a, yeah. like I'm a stranger. So that's what I brought to that story in order to feel authentic. Yeah. When you were writing fiction, how much of yourself do you, how, how much of your own experience and the, and the artist do you bring to the work? Like sometimes I think most fiction is a type of auto-fiction. I think it is, yeah. You can't divorce yourself from it. And like there was a period, I suppose, in the, in the last century now, uh, 30 years ago, people, writers, they'd be writing this kind of postmodernist stuff mm -hmm. where to tell you it was all artifact. Mm -hmm. You know, like you'd say, I couldn't fucking understand the, mm -hmm. the novel, John. And you'd say, well, it's really all artifact, Michael, you know. And you'd say, oh, I see, right. And, and that was like, that was a dead end because mm -hmm. it's like there's too much happening in the world mm -hmm. and there's too much suffering and mm -hmm. there's too much anxiety mm -hmm. to waste the fucking trees making up stories. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. No, but why would you do that? Like, if, if, you, if you actually really look at writers, whether it's, we'll say, Marquez in South America or Borges or William Faulkner in, in America or Saul Bellow or, you know, I'm only making, throwing out names that come into my head. <laughs> and uh, Virginia Woolf. I love her. Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's an, an endless amount of writers that are great, mm -hmm. whatever. But, but actually, if you, if you check it out, sure, it is their story. Mm -hmm. it, it is totally their mm -hmm. story. It, it, it's always your story. And I think one of the amazing things for me, like when I was 16, I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. There's two things I wanted to be. I wanted to tell stories because I got bullied Mm -hmm. a lot when I was young and the only way you could survive was by being the comedian. Mm -hmm. So I told stories and people laughed and I was gone out the door. Mm -hmm. So that was fine. But the other thing was that I enjoyed being on my own. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed solitude and that I think is where I ended up going into religion because it was like, it wasn't so much the religion that I liked, it was more the solitude. Mm -hmm. that the religions were saying, when you're on your own, there's something interesting happening. Mm -hmm. There's no need to be lonely. There's something fucking going on there. And, and that, you don't and feel that to lonely me, from being on your own? 
No. Neither do I. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, I would say, we're two monks, really. Reincarnated. <laughs> but that, that, to me, was the key to sort of one path, which was maybe religion, and the other path was, was to be a writer. And that was because I just didn't know any other way to survive except telling stories. And so I got my uncle to buy me a typewriter. He didn't buy it, he, ha he had a typewriter. And at 16 or 15 or 14, I forget, I got a typewriter and it was like the, 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 you know, the tools of the trade. I've always seen writing as a trade, like music. If, mm -hmm. if you're a musician, you have an instrument and you practice on it. It's as simple as that. And if you don't practice your instrument, don't be telling people you're a musician because you're, you're no good even if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if your musical ability is superb, you'll still be no good because you're not fucking practicing it. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. And I figured that I've always seen writing like that. It's, it's a lovely craft. And Elizabeth Bishop, she was an American professor of, of creative writing, and one time they asked her, what should you give a young person who wants to be a writer? And she said, a typewriter. <laughs> That's all. Uh, yeah. You know, just go and practice it. And you'll find that you can do it because, because everybody in this room has as much narrative as I have. Your life is as full of your experiences as mine is as mine. You, you, your sense of loss and bereavement for your parents, your sisters, your brothers, your mothers, your daughters, whoever, is the same as mine. Your sense of loneliness and isolation when a relationship breaks up. Like, we're just full of narrative. Mm -hmm. And there's some dynamic happens when you practice narrative as a storyteller. And, and sometimes it's so liberating and joyful and funny, and sometimes it's therapeutic, like you're saying. And I, I just felt there's no other life for me but that. And what I did was I tried everything else. And I proved to myself that I was a failure at everything. Right? So I ended up being a writer. 30 years after. I, or One thing 16. I'd love to, to draw upon you said there as well, because you, when, when you said to the people here, like, we all have stories and we all have this capacity to tell them. And the thing is, at about the age of three or four, we get bro like everyone fucks around with crayons when they're a child. Everyone, everyone plays with crayons. Everyone plays with Marla. Everyone makes up ideas. Then you get to about four or five in school, and they decide you're good and you're not. And we break off into people who are good at doing this and people who are shit at doing this. I'm upstaging you. <laughs> I'm trying to hang me coat, and there's no fucking coat hanger. <laughs> That's like. Uh, there's a Spike Milligan story, and there's a fellow who's wearing a hat all the time, and they say to him, why, are you still, why, why do you wear that hat all the time? And he goes, because I don't, I don't have anywhere to hang it. <laughs> but you and I became storytellers for the same reason, which was basic survival. Yeah. I got picked on a lot as a child, though, but I was uh, bullied frequently. I wasn't very good at fighting. So it's like a great way out of this is if I become a very funny person. Yeah. If I'm the person with the stories and the jokes, then the bullies leave you alone because they make you laugh. So yeah. I learned to become an artist and a storyteller as, as an act of survival as a child. Yeah. But I'm always trying to get everybody and any, anybody to create just for the sake of it. Yeah. Like you, you, you can become a writer as a profession, but you can also just write. You can just journal. Yeah. You can just do it for the sake of... Um, the sheer joy of fucking having something there, and if you don't like it, you can throw in the bin afterwards. Because creativity isn't about the... Like, that story there, that genuinely was very nice when I read that out, and I'm like, oh, people laughed, people liked it. That was, that was lovely, and it feels fantastic. But the joy of this story was 
doing it. Like any creativity for me, like sometimes I don't even like finishing a book. It reminds me of death. Yeah. I like the bit in the middle. Yeah. The bit in the middle is what it's all about. And that's too, that's my, my critique at the moment as well of this uh, artificial intelligence art. Where you, have you seen any of this yet? I have. I've, I've heard of it, but like, yeah. You can just type in like uh, M- Michael Harding crashes into the Twin Towers. Yeah. And it will create that image in two seconds. It, it, yeah. Like a painting, like yeah. that, boom. And the thing is, is that the joy of creativity is, I might say to myself, I'm going to paint a picture of Michael Harding crashing into the Twin Towers. And I might start doing it as a human. And then at the end of it, it's not about you crashing into the Twin Towers at all. Yeah. Something completely different has happened in the process. Yeah. And now I've got a, a, a painting of Saddam Hussein. Yeah. Do you know, I, I, anything, <laughs> anything can happen. AI removes the middle bit, the fun yeah. bit, the process. He was a good-looking man, Saddam He was a very yeah, good-looking man, yeah. wasn't he? I mean, he was a very handsome fucker, Saddam. Yeah, he was, no. He had that, you could he tell it as well when he was... Strong um, eyebrows. No. And he was charming. I saw him when he was hanging. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> no, not really. I saw him on the television. That was awful, the way the Yanks did that, didn't Don't it? we... Uh, we lived through dark times sometimes, Fuck you know. Fuck me, the way the Yanks put that on television. They never did that in Fermanagh. <laughs> do you know what they used to do in fucking Limerick man about 600 years ago so we used to there's a bridge Thoman Bridge in Limerick that goes onto the Thoman Castle mm. so, and they used to have a public gallows where they would oh, uh, yeah. they'd execute oh, people yeah. but they would ha- uh, chop someone's head off and hang the body right uh. over the bridge but the really really poor people used to go up with balls and make black pudding out of the blood okay now yeah and you think you're fucking great with your blaz? <laughs> I've always wondered the reason for the plastic mask, you know? <laughs> um, He's staying fucking safe. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you become a priest? It was a mistake. It was a mistake. <laughs> It was the biggest fucking mistake in my life. What? Like... <laughs> well, what that was until, was like, No, like, that was the biggest mistake until I left. You're talking about, like, I wanted to be a writer, and I'm going, oh, I know, great, yeah. tell me about this writing career. Yeah. And then, like, I think I'll become a priest. I wrote... I wrote... I'll tell you a, a, a poem. It's not, it's not a good poem, but it's a little child poem I wrote, I wrote when I was about 15, and it was published in... David Marcus used to publish me when I was a teenager in the newspaper which used to terrify the shite out of all the teachers in St. Pat's and Gavin. <laughs> I was only doing the intercert and I had, you know, poems in the Saturday paper. But one of them said, um, someday I'll go to the city and I'll look at the filth and the dirt and I'll roll around in it for poets are a dirty lot. And my jeans will be faded, my hair in a mess and I'll write of debt and decaying matter and how I had an unhappy childhood. And all will say, the boy has talent, for he lives like a beggar and writes what he shouldn't. But I wish I could stay at home in the field with the sun at half eight, alone with the evening. Gorgeous. And, and that was like... Jesus Christ, and you must have been 14 or 15. When I, I was, no, I was, that was but nine. Were you reading Patrick Kavanagh? Oh, I was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Under the desk. yeah. Paddy Kavanagh's book, uh, published by O'Keefe, the collected poems, came out in 1966. And that was after struggles because 
Faber and Faber wouldn't publish them in Britain mm-hmm. at all. Ignored them. T.S. Eliot was the head of Faber and Faber. Keep that in your mind. Yeah, and he Couldn't stand wow. the old paddies. Wow. Well, we'll have none of that. He wasn't just anti-Jewish, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, um, didn't like the old paddies. So Kavanaugh was never published like that in Britain. But they finally, O'Keefe brought out a, an edition of all his poems in 66. And that I know because that was my first year mm-hmm. in St. Pat's and Kavanaugh. And instead of doing all the homework that I should have been doing and I would have got a good leaving certificate, I just, you know the desks, you pull one up. Mm-hmm. And you could hide from, they used to have a, a, a cleric, a priest, like as a kind of sentry man. The only thing he didn't have was a Kalashnikov watching you. <laughs> I'd say if, if, if you were in, you know, certain Islamic schools, it might be similar. And you'd have it up like this, you'd be reading the contraband poems by Paddy Kavanagh. And it was astonishing for us at that time in Ireland because I come from a different planet. Mm-hmm. I come from Ireland of the 60s and 70s. We did not think it was possible that our voice would ever be mm-hmm. in print anywhere. When a writer from Cavan by the name of Dermot Healy reported that he may have a book coming out, it was like an event. Mm-hmm. It's like that couldn't be true, could it? He's actually, he's actually getting a book published. And so when we read Kavanaugh and we saw that these were poems... That and he's Manahan, which isn't a million miles away from Kavanaugh. Oh, it's the same, yeah. 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 Did you identify... His language. Like, because the thing about Kavanaugh, like I adore Paddy Kavanaugh, he's mother. the great bagger poet. Ah. You know what I mean? Ah. And that meant shut up. But it's true. Go on. He is, like, he's the he great... Is. He's, he's a culture representation. Yeah. Now, I'm from Limerick. I consider... Whoever Dublin calls a culture is a culture. So, your cultures... Yeah. I'm... Like, I know Waterford's a city. Don't ex- ex- try and explain that to Dublin. Limerick is a city as well, but we're all cultures. Dublin's not a city. It's just Galway on a horn. <laughs> Go to Toronto if you want to see a city. But I always felt... I felt that... Uh, Dublin fetishized Kavanaugh like a noble <laughs> savage. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? They uh, felt like, here's this wild animal from a bush. In right. And he walked barefoot to Dublin, didn't he? Yeah, he walked into the trap. I, I think that, that uh, Dublin poisoned them with a sense of bitterness. You know, he got yeah. too hung up on everything and yeah. destroyed himself. Uh, but his poetry, out of the pure, pristine energy mm-hmm. of Monaghan, talking, let's say, about his mother. Mm-hmm. I do not see a lion in the cold, wet clay of morning graveyard. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the way people who are friends of mine would speak to me about my own mother. They'd say, Michael, she's not lying in the grave. They'd say that at a funeral, you know. They, so they, they, you, they, what Kavanaugh you liked about spoke his prose, like a real... He spoke how you spoke. He spoke yeah. all the people, yeah. And yeah. there's a great power in that because yeah. that's, um, that's what turned me on to Flann O'Brien. Yeah. When I was a kid, and I'd be listening to people like Bob Dylan or Tom Waits, yeah. and these to me were artists that, that were at the level of gods. Yeah. Like the art they were making would make me feel so special that it's like they were unattainable. Yeah. And then I read Flann O'Brien, and it's like I feel the same way about Flann's work as I do about Bob Dylan, yeah. but Flann talks like I talk. This is an Irish person with Irish thoughts. And that moment made me feel like. I reckon I could try this. Yeah. Like, if it's someone from New York, like Bob Dylan, it's like, I can't, I can't try that. I, I don't think it would be un- overstating it to say that Blind Boy 
does in the English language now in Ireland what Cavan was doing, because you're bringing it to another new level, and I don't mean that in any hyperbolic way. Thank you very much. You I'm going to tell that to the Irish Times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when you decided to be a priest, yeah. like, where was where did you see your creative and artistic expression there? Like, were you were you thinking, right? At least I'm going to give him. I get to say mass, and in mass, like a good priest is a good storyteller. Yeah. Like my my ma, when she listens to my podcast, she says, uh, "You remind me of a good priest." <laughs> That's what she says. She remembers like in in the fifties uh, and sixties. She said, you'd go around Limerick and certain churches had queues and others yeah, didn't. And yeah. the one that had a queue meant this priest isn't just reading, he's telling stories. So my ma goes, you remind me of a good priest. So your, mother, your mother is always right. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a wisdom in what the mother says. Were you uh, thinking that way? Were you, no, like, where I, was your I, creativity going to come into? I, I wrote, I wrote, uh, I wrote poetry, I published poetry, I was in college, I went to Maynooth, finished university with a BA, then did HDIP, and then got a job teaching in Lawn House, open prison. Mm -hmm. Met a lot of people from Limerick there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I lived in West Cavan. I, I lived in Glangevlin in West Cavan, which is a mythic place, and I had never met rural Ireland before. I had been brought up as a kind of a, a refugee in, you know, suburban Cavan. A frightening kind of lonely place to grow up, I do think. And I didn't believe that rural Ireland was like it, it was to me. In Glangevlin, the doors were open and people were dancing half sets and people were drinking and people were singing and people were having sex and it was like fucking a great time. And it was, mm -hmm. But it was also a community. It was like a total fabric. It was like one big family in the whole area on the mountainside and I loved it and I was so happy and I was writing away and I, I moved I got cynical about the prison service because I mm -hmm. met complete hypocrites in the Department of Justice mm -hmm. who did have like I remember they had a big conference but 1973 about all we were doing real adventurous stuff now Lachan House wasn't for it later became the Bugsy Malones right mm -hmm. What happened there was that there was a campaign in the media against kids who were, true or false, burning buildings in Dublin around Grafton Street. And there was just an organized campaign mm -hmm. at them. And for that, they opened Lahan House. They closed it down as what it was. It was an open center for young offenders. Mm -hmm. there was, there was so like a bar still almost. No, it was much freer. It was like the, the kids that we had were 16 to 23. As I say, many were from Limerick, and they were beautiful young people, and it, it gave me a complete insight into the sort of way that morality is culturally defined, and mm -hmm. that if your recreation is robbing cars, your recreation is robbing cars. It's no more immoral than golf. That's what we do. We don't have golf courses, right? Um, this is where they were getting a sense of meaning. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Or, or maybe even deviants, because young people do have to be deviant. Like yeah. po posh boys are deviant as well. You know, mm -hmm. you just don't see it. And and or they you don't know, go to jail when they get caught. Yeah. 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 No. No. I, I. I really had a 
full of that, and it was a beautiful thing we were doing as an experiment. We, I would take, for example, any evening at four o'clock, I would say that, you know, there's three names of guys will be away until 10. And I'd take them in the car and we'd go up to Glengevelin, and I was doing that interconnection, bringing them to country houses, and they'd be seeing how people live in this other planet. Oh, wow, okay. And it was lovely. That all was closed down. Because so they were of the seeing cows for the first time and horses yeah, and chickens. Yeah. And wow. Yeah. That was closed down because this campaign about what they called the Bugsy Malones, that there was mm -hmm. these out of control, like there was tens of thousands of young Dublin five-year-olds out of control had to be locked up somewhere. Mm -hmm. In actual fact, the, the millions they put into uh, Lachan House at that time, about 1976 when it opened for that group, they lowered the age of criminality to 11. So, so, like, criminality responsibility started at 16, and that would be the same in every European country. Mm -hmm. So the idea would have been that you should have stopped anything to do with the Department of Justice being involved with under-16s and give it to health. Mm -hmm. But they went the opposite way. They changed the law to make it legal for the Department of Justice to lock up 12-year-olds, uh, mm -hmm. right? They ended up with about, I'd say, about 10 kids for the first year or two years. There was nobody in it. Mm -hmm. and, and I won't say any famous names, but you'd, the hairs it'd stand on the back of your neck if you knew who those first ten mm -hmm. as innocent kids were, because they obviously made great careers and became famous in crime worlds afterwards. Mm -hmm. So it didn't do any good. It was a bad thing. But I remember having a big row at a conference one time with a secretary at the department and saying, like, we really need a therapeutic way to deal with people who are offending. And he said, Michael, he said, he took me aside and said, you know, Michael, uh, what you're doing here is really good and we really appreciate it. But you know, you must remember, it's window dressing. Yeah, yeah. Right? And he really said that. I thought, so you're, you're, you're actually the boss in the department and you're actually saying what we're doing is actually window dressing to make the public think, oh, isn't that wonderful? but you don't actually believe in what we're doing. So I left. And what was his belief that these are just bad kids and fuck them? Ah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would say it. People who are cynical would, say, would always say, I sure, look, if you look, their fathers were in prison. You know. Look, their uncles are in prison. Yeah, and no idea of trauma. No, or, no, yeah. no, no. But, but I, I walked out at that stage, and so suddenly I found myself working with the social services in Sligo. Mm -hmm. And at some point in the Sligo experience, I felt there's something more in my life now, do you know, that I'm looking for and I'm not getting. And, and I'm trying to find it in, if you like, activism. You know, I'm trying to find it like being a, a real right-on person. And at the time, and I, I, I nearly don't want to go into this because it is so boring and it's so over. It's such a, an over-finished conversation. But I'll just quickly, in the 70s, and the 70s particularly, the trend was that we're going to have a very left-wing Marxist church in the future. Mm -hmm. We're going to have community churches gathered not in the institution but around social issues. We're going to have what they used to call a preferential option for the poor. This was like a radical position came out of South America. And oh, the liberation yeah, theology. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and our icons were people like uh, Gutierrez, big uh, theologian, mm -hmm. Leonardo Boff, Schillebex, Hans Kung, Segundo. I could name a dozen of them. 
And, and that drew me into Manute mm -hmm. with the notion that social justice and left-wing parties, they're all nonsense. You know, they all end up just the same old politics. And that in some sense, the church was given me a very authentic image of what church mm -hmm. could be, but it was also given me a sense where that solitary little person that wanted to be alone mm -hmm. and listen to, you know, the sense of prayerfulness inside, that that was all going to work out. And it did for four years until just as I was about to be ordained, uh, the Polish man became Pope. Okay. And it was like he got on the bus and reversed it into the last century. And these... And so he created a church where people like me couldn't belong, so it was time to leave. And also as well, now I might be incorrect with this, but I'm vaguely familiar with the liberation theology and, and South America where Catholicism there was very much about what Christ was into. Let's defend the poor and fuck the rich people. Yeah. But as I understand this, the bishops in America had a huge problem with this, and America had a concerted effort in crushing any type of socialist slash uh, priests that yeah. were happening. They, you're right, just, but the, the historical sequence is that, um, and by the way, like people like Peter McVerry, mm -hmm. right, they, they, they were the templates mm -hmm. of, of ministry in Ireland at the time, and there would have been many people like Peter McVerry and, and following his kind of concept that he was a complete activist for social justice mm -hmm. in a really positive way. Um, I think what happened was that in the 70s, the pendulum had swung totally towards liberation theology. Mm -hmm. So the entire South American bishops gathered in a place called Medellin in uh, 1968, and they issued a kind of manifesto. And that's where they used that phrase, a preferential option for the poor. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was very inspiring, like, for a lot of people. And there was, there was nuns working, let's say, in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And they were really doing sort of um, catechesis. It was like, you know, they were kind of out there teaching young children what it was to have the Eucharist and have forgiveness and have prayer and all that. But they were doing it within a very sharp-edged context of social justice, right? And there was three, I think... Two, anyway, those two priests who were actually in the, the government in Nicaragua, they were, they were Minister for Culture and I think Minister for Education, were both Jesuit priests. And there was a fellow called Helda Camero, who was a cardinal in Brazil, who was another very famous guy. So the, the pendulum had swung to a point where it was feasible even in Ireland to think, mm -hmm. this, there's something deep here, there's something hopeful. But and, in the context of the Cold War has gone on at the same time. What's going on? The Cold War is going on at the same time. The Cold time. War is going on. We weren't paying attention to that. We weren't paying attention to how significant Karol Wojciech was to European politics. Mm -hmm. All we were looking is West. Now, what happened was that the pendulum began to swing back once Pope John Paul II became Pope. Within 12 months, and I saw this, every book by all those authors that I mentioned were banned. Oh, my God. So, yeah. so the very books that I had gone back and studied, like I got the lectures on them with four years studying those boys, like Schillebecks, they were all just taken off the shelf and banned. And, and, and that was like as clear as you'd want where the church is going. And you then found yourself in a church where it's like, I don't belong here now. This yeah, isn't but what I, mean, I got I, in here for. I, I simply said it. 
I, I simply said it to the bishop, like, this is, I've no place in this, so, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll do four years, because I've got four years free education, but mm -hmm. I'll be off. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, time for a little interval, right? Um, here's a recommendation that I'd give to ye. I'm guessing a lot of ye are having a little pint tonight, yeah? They only have one tap. So, however, they're serving cans of Grolch, which, I, which isn't a bad lager. So, if, if, uh, if there's a mad queue for the tap, get a can of Grolch instead, and then it means that the interval isn't unnecessarily long. I'm not sponsored by Grolch. <laughs> I'm not getting any money from it. It's just a little bit of advice. All right, we'll be back out in about 15 minutes, all right? Now, let's have a small little ocarina pause before we go back to the rest of the interview. Free fucking advert there for Grolch, who definitely, who could definitely be paying me a few quid. They don't need any free adverts from me. But, yeah, fuck it, man. Grolch is, is, uh, I rediscovered it there recently. A nice inoffensive lager, if, you do, if you're not into the fox's piss taste of IPA. That's not an advertisement. If that was an advertisement... I'd be legally obliged to tell you to drink responsibly. So I'm not going to do that this time. So that's proof that that's not an ad. That's just my opinion about Grolsch Lager. You couldn't fucking escape it in the early 2000s. They used to plant it inside in films and everything. You'd ha it had the distinctive bottle cap. That little thing at the top of the bottle of Grolsch. It was in every single film and you'd know it straight away. That's what we had before fucking IPAs. Grolsch was like the, the San Pellegrino of beers. Because San Pellegrino... It's just fucking Fanta with tinfoil on top. That's all it is. But the thing with San Pellegrino is like you're paying for that bit of tinfoil at the top. Actually, they, they got rid of that recently. They got rid of the tinfoil. I'm handing out the free ads. Handing out free ads for giant companies that don't need it. For fuck's sake. Have you ever heard of this place called McDonald's, lads, no? Have you heard of McDonald's? Takeaway place, yeah. Lovely burgers. McDonald's. You know, you know, McDonald's. You never heard of McDonald's? Two burgers. They had a, a clown. They had this clown with red hair and lipstick. Used to be the mascot and then they kind of pushed him to one side after 9-11. Kind of just didn't, didn't see much of Ronald McDonald after 9-11, which I don't know why. I've got, I've got, now isn't the time. Now isn't the time, but there'll be a hot take about that in the future. My personal opinion, I think Ronald McDonald disappeared at the time that the US became aggressively imperialist and invaded the Middle East. Because, and they, they peeled back the Ronald McDonald, they hid him away in case he became a symbol of US violent imperialism. So let's have an ocarina pause now. I don't have my ocarina. It's um, it's under this pile here of Amazon Kindles. Have you heard of Amazon? Ever heard of Amazon? You buy their, they sell things on the internet. So the ocarina there is hidden underneath some some Amazon Kindles. All right, look, I don't have the ocarina. I've got this fucking. It's a piece of Latin American percussion. I think it's called a cabasa, but it makes a nice shaking noise. And you're going to hear an advert here. For some stuff. Hold up. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That was the Amazon Kindle pause. I'm not sponsored by any of those cunts. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Do you enjoy this podcast? Does it bring you solace? Does it bring you mart? Does it distract you? Whatever it is that has you listening to this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I put in to make the podcast because this is my full time job. This is how I earn a living. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month not Dublin pints pints outside of Dublin but if you can't afford that don't worry about it because you can listen for free because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free so everybody gets a podcast I get to earn a living and by keeping this podcast listener funded it means that I'm not beholden to any advertiser no advertiser can come in dictate the content ask me to change what I speak about influence the fabric and tone of this podcast in any way it's fully independent have i got any gigs i bet you i do and i don't have the gig page pulled up very chaotic this week lads i could probably tell you the gigs off the top of my head can i yeah because my internet's been a cunt i'm gonna try and guess the gigs do you know the only one that's not fucking setting is that gig in drahada in the tlt theater which i think is april 1st the rest are there's Canada. I think Canada's sold out. Vicker Street, man. In fucking... When is that? March? I, I think there's a few tickets left for one of those Vicker Streets. Like, ten tickets left. They're announcing a new Vicker Street for... August. So if you're interested in coming to Vicker Street in, like, August, I think I think you can do that. I need a fucking website. I need a website that has all my gigs in it and I say to ye there's my website go there and if you're interested in a gig they're going to be on this website it's been five years like of me not knowing what, where my gigs are and at one point a promoter's going to sue me at some point okay back to the interview with the wonderful Michael Harding michaelharding.ie for his gigs and books all in one place did you all get a little point? Do you know what I'd like to do tonight? Because I have been noticing, like, loads of people clearly brought their own cans. <laughs> but, which is grand, I don't give a fuck. One thing, right, when, I, when I'm doing a live podcast and there's cans in the audience, sometimes something that can happen is that someone will open a can, right? 
and it can sound like a person tutting. So I'd be there talking at my guest, and then I hear, and I'm going, what went wrong? So what I like to do to remedy this, and it's actually a beautiful thing, everyone who has a can right now, let's all open them at once. <laughs> I promise you, it's amazing. So take out your cans. Wait for the little shuffle. Quiet, please. Okay. Three, two, one. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's like being in a bar in a western. Everyone takes out the gun. And I got my delicious can of Grolch. Something that I haven't appreciated this in a long time. Hold on, there's a camera over there. I've got to make sure the label is... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I want to get sponsored by 3% Dutch gold, man. That's what I want to get. <laughs> did you hear what they did with some of the beers after they brought in the new laws? So they brought in these new laws that uh, minimum pricing for alcohol. So the real cheap beers like Dutch gold, they made them 3%. So now everyone's trying to drink Dutch gold and they, you can't get drunk on it, not on 3%. Fuck and did you see the poor old Linden, Linden Village? On a floppy. Little small Linden Village. <laughs> so who said Linden Village is rotten? It's not about how nice it is, it's about the memories. <laughs> and <laughs> That's the point of Linden Village. Uh. I'm not going to willingly drink Linden Village. That's not what I want. But I will, like, if I want something nostalgic, if I want to feel 14, <laughs> if, I want to, if, if I want to feel what it's like getting confirmed, <laughs> I'll drink Linden Village. So, we're not going to talk about Christianity. Or, no, we're not going to talk about the church anymore. No. What I would love to talk about, and this is something that I'm personally fascinated in, your journey to Buddhism. Ah. What drew you to, to, to Buddhism? Confusion. <laughs> I loved, by the way, just when you're talking about I'll drink, wasn't it a podcast you did the story of making the, making the Oh, no, it was making booze. my own beer, yeah. Have you heard that one? That's a masterpiece. <laughs> it's a true story, man. Like, seriously, you know, from a literary point of view, the way that blind boy can focus on one single image, like it could be the horse's body in the van or it could be in the other one, it's like the actual waste wheelie bin full of it's just unbelievable that is writing at its absolute most masterful, I guarantee you I Thank really you so admire much. that writing Thank it's you. not flattery, it's true if I didn't have a bag in my head I'd be blushing Um, and Buddhism? Buddhism? Yeah, Buddhism. I was in Mongolia, you know. Go away. Yeah. Uh, I went with my teacher. My teacher brought me. I said, I would like to be a Buddhist. He said, he said come in now and we'll go to Mongolia. That'll fuck you up. How, how did you meet a person? All that, that Western old shite about being Buddhist. You come to Mongolia and drink the yak's milk. Did you ever drink horse's milk? No. Did you ever drink horse's no, milk? No, no. Well, wait till I tell you now. You have a treat coming for you. <laughs> what to do in Mongolia, and I didn't know this when I left Ireland, 
grown off to be a Buddhist. I didn't know this at all about Mongolia. I didn't know Mongolia, where it was from, but I got to Mongolia anyway, and I realized that they're very fond of the horses, and they love to drink the horse's milk. But they don't even drink it fresh. They drink it like after it's been about two weeks in a bucket under the bed fermenting. Ah, they do. And, and when, when you come to somebody's home, their, their gear or yurt or whatever you want to call it, uh, they'd be welcoming you, and they'd be welcoming the great Rinpoche, he, a Tibetan lama, right? And they'd be welcome. And do you know what they'd give you? A bowl of old horse's milk. And they'd look at you and smile. <laughs> and there are big bowls. And I remember one time, there was, I was traveling two and a half thousand miles with me, with me teacher. And we had nine people with us. And the only Westerner was myself and another woman. Another woman, uh, a woman. <laughs> although, although maybe, who knows? Anyway, a woman called Heidi, she was the nurse for the trip. And then there was the rest were Tibetan or Mongolian monks and two nuns. Well, every time we'd get the fucking big thing, like you'd be sick for a day after, it was strong stuff. Wow. And you'd see little black fellas like, you know, the tadpoles. Yeah. Not the tadpoles, but the, the spawn. You know the spawn? Yeah, yeah. The little, like a little globe with, with an eye in the middle of it. You'd see not one of them in it. And you'd be wondering, I wonder what that is. What is that? Yeah, what is yeah. that? Like, wish I was a scientist here. Yeah. You know, an anthropologist or some fucking thing, you know? And... So it's not quite cheese yet. I don't think it ever becomes cheese. Is I think it just stays... See, I don't know, like, I know everyone ate horses there in 2014 when we went to Tesco, but, like, <laughs> I don't know about horses' milk. I mean, uh, I mean, can you describe the taste? Is, is this, like, I mean, Jesus, man, imagine well, kind I, of I, a goat's milk. Like, have you ever, you ever I, smell a goat in real life? <laughs> Once you smell a goat, you can't drink goat's milk or eat goat's cheese anymore because it's just, that's the smell of a goat's undercarriage. This seemed like, the only way to describe the smell is that you'd have a consensus that this is something should not be consumed. You know, it, <laughs> there are certain smells that, that the human species knows don't touch that. Like, like birds know, you know, we know red berry, they, don't yeah. touch that. Your smell would give you the idea that that shouldn't be taken. Right, so you'd get this bowl as a welcoming thing and the Rinpoche, that's the blessed one, he's my teacher. And he'd get his bowl, and then I'd get my bowl, and Heidi would get her bowl, and all the monks would get their bowl. They'd no sucking it up. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'd be there like, I can't do this. And they used to enjoy watching us. <laughs> you know, there'd be 30 people from the little village or collection of, of tents, you know, and they'd be enjoying. Very good. <laughs> and I decided one time that the only way to do it the way you take medicine was to yeah. do it like quickly, mm -hmm. like do it. And one day I just knocked it all back in one genuine, one gulp, like a real man. I did that. And I hadn't it down on my knee <laughs> when your man was bending over, pouring. <laughs> oh my God. And he was saying to Heidi Hood. Oh, he loves this. He like, he like it, he like it. I give him more. <laughs> And I have this in a book. I wrote, there's a book called um, Staring at Lakes. 
And in that book, I described the journey. And there was once we were in Ulaanbaatar, and they used to lock me in a monastery at night. So the way they did that was, it wasn't that they were afraid I'd escape, but it was that the other real monks and the posh Rinpoche, they were going off to stay in an apartment. And because, and Heidi was going off with them because she's a woman, but poor Gobshite from Ireland, he can stay in the monastery. The monastery would be like maybe a hundred monks and one single toilet, and the guest room was beside the toilet. Oh. Now, in Mongolia, all the monks go home at five o'clock, right? So it's a nine to five job. And they go home to their families, their wives and their kids. And the reason is that when the Soviets came in, they wouldn't allow monks, they wouldn't allow monasteries. So they made a compromise where if the boys did it as a kind of a day job and go home, <laughs> they'd let them do it. Wow. So the boys continue doing it. And three generations, 70 years... Well, if this wasn't a bad idea there yeah, for the Russians, yeah. 70 years later, in 1996, if you watched Rush Hour in Ulaanbaatar at half five of the evening, you'd see these hundreds of monks, like in Tibetan clothes, heading off with an odd briefcase, heading home for the evening to watch the telly and eat crisps and drink beer and come back in the morning and go, And when they're doing that, one of the frightening things when they're doing that is that they fart. And farting is kind of good in, in Buddhist philosophy, apparently. They call it for meditation. No, no, the, it, within meditation, it's called the settling down of the winds. I don't know what it means. I don't know what to, how to say that in Tibetan, but in English it would be, you know, I am doing the settling down of the winds. And, and they actually do it so that there's a hundred monks in a room with no window open. And they're literally going, you see it on television, it looks so romantic. And there's always a kind of a white American woman with a scarf sitting with them, you know, it's beautiful. If you fucking were there, <laughs> it's fucking rough. Anyway, they used to, they'd all go home, they'd all go home, and there used to be big high wire fence all around the monastery to keep it safe. I don't know from people who were trying to rob it, and that could be possibly true, but they'd lock me inside. They would actually lock the door from the outside and laugh at me through the little window. <laughs> See you tomorrow. And I'd be in this tiny little room, just the size of my body, and the whole monastery, and all these images of Buddhas, and, and like devouring Buddhas, and Kali Buddhas, and dark Buddhas, and all the rest of it. And butter lamps. The butter lamps have a fierce smell What's to them. What's a butter lamp? A butter lamp is, is their lights. You know the way we'd have night lights yeah, by them yeah. in the deals or some are cheap. The, their night lights are, are big bowls that they hand make with butter. With a kind of, again, I think they like rancid everything. Rancid yeah. butter, very good. So that gives you a smell as well. So the farting in the day, but then at night you'd have the butter lamps. And I'm there, and every day I used to get fed. And one of the ways I was fed, I used to get what's called momos. And momos were what we call in the West, what do you call them? Dumplings. Yeah. But in, in Mongolia, they're called momos. And I used to love the momos with soy sauce. But the only thing they give you to drink was horse's milk. 
So I'd get a bucket. The woman would come around to the cell and she'd leave you a bucket and the momos. And that was it. And you'd get fed the next day again. I'm sitting there this evening and I'm looking at the bucket of horse's milk. And I said, the only way to do this is the way you did it with Guinness when you were young. And that is, go for it. Mm-hmm. Train your palate. And I took a full bowl of it and I thought, I, I couldn't imagine anything worse. I said, the next bowl will make the difference. And I took a second bowl of it. And what I was beginning to realize was the fermentation was actually giving me alcohol. And by the end of the second bowl, I thought, will I have a third bowl now or keep it for later? (laughs) (laughs) And whenever anybody tells me that they had a good milky, creamy pint, I say to myself, you don't know what you're talking about, baby. I know what cream is in a fucking pint. And I have this in the book, and I'm only telling you because it's in the book. I wouldn't say this publicly. But I went asleep. I walked around. I got drunk, and I was walking around the whole monastery looking at these amazing images. And the only images were these female Buddhas, these warrior kind of female Buddhas looking at me with big swords. And I went to sleep, and I woke up. I'm only saying, I would never say this in public, but I woke up with the biggest erection. (laughs) <laughs> I ever had I'm not joking it's, it's in a book it's in the book called Staring at Lakes a full description of the size of it the length of it and how long it lasted but I tell you if they could fucking bottle the horse's milk you'd make a lot of money no wonder I'm a Buddhist <laughs> Do, do you ever get nostalgic for the milk? Do you ever be like, I wouldn't mind that now? I get nostalgic for that beautiful time. Yeah. You know, it was like five years of my life, give up drink, give up smoking, give up... Like, I didn't give up sex, but I give up nearly everything <laughs> for five years of meditation with this man. And he still is my teacher, even though that's 27 years ago. And, and part of it, I went to India to visit a monastery that, that he had students in, and then I went to Mongolia with them for about five weeks of this tour. And it was... I, I cut his fingernails one day with a scissors. We were in the desert, and uh, he asked me, would you cut my fingernails? And I was cutting his fingernails, and to me it was like he was the Christ. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was overwhelmed with the honor he was doing me. I was looking at his fingers and thinking, and, you know, I think of, like, the way that people do that for an old person, mm-hmm. lovingly, or the way nurses, I've seen a lot of nurses because, <laughs> because I'd be in hospital, but, like, uh, the love and care they give in the middle of the night, you know, you're awake in the bed in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. and there's somebody beside you, and the n- nurses come, and they say, like, will we give her a massage? And they don't have to do this. It's not on the pay sheet. And they, and they spend half an hour, and they clean her up and freshen her down and give her a lovely massage, and she goes to sleep. Think they're doing that in secret. Yeah. So, like, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that I had that moment, and when you say, do you feel nostalgia? I do feel nostalgia for every bit of that Mongolian experience, but I feel blessed even for that short moment that I kind of got so outside 
all the kind of flow of my mind distractions mm -hmm. to be able to see the world from a different point of view. How much um, meditation were you doing on a, on a daily basis? At, at its height? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'd often meet people, still do, but even at that time, you'd meet people and they'd say, oh, you know, I do a lot of meditation. And I do an hour a morning and say I'm a deep and I do half an hour. This, this never worked for me as a concept. Mm -hmm. And the teacher that I'd be t talking to, you know, would kind of laugh at that. You see, do you mind me going around in a circle oh, about that? Oh, whatever you want, go for it. But it's like the great, wonderful, wonderful gift of, of Buddhism is that to grip anything is a mistake. And a lot of people in the West grip Buddhism. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing. You might as well be gripping Volvo cars and loving them. Mm -hmm. You know, when somebody says, I love the teachings. Mm -hmm. But in some sense, you'll get an intensity. And people like the Dalai Lama will say to Western people all the time, he'll say, don't be changing your religion. There's no need to. If you're a Buddhist, be a Christian. Wow. Because to, to be something different defeats the concept of what Buddhism is. It's, it's what Rumi says, you know, be washed away like the snow washes itself away. Be gone from yourself. Be nothing. There's no need to go somewhere. And religion is not about a journey. Re religion is not about finding love in your heart. It's actually just getting rid of all the things that block you realizing there's love in your heart. Y you are love. This is God. The, the, again, in Islam, the beautiful, beautiful Sufi tradition in Islam where they say there is nothing but God. There's nothing but God. I have a dear friend, Idris, he's Syrian, and he lost one, I think, niece in the water, in the Mediterranean, out of the boat, dead. Mm -hmm. And his, his family are scattered all over the place, and he's in Ireland, and he's a young man, but he's so wise about you know, the, the evils of institution and religion but the utter beauty and poetry of Islam. And, and so many times he'd be up in, in my uh, studio, you know, where I have an old stove, and he'd say, Michael, this is God. This is God. You don't have to find God. God is what we're looking at. It's the, it's the moment we're in is God. We just keep filtering it out with complexity. Mm -hmm. So that the great thing about Buddhism is it's not reaching for a new teaching. And, and the Heart Sutra, in Buddhism, the Heart Sutra says, the ultimate teaching is, there is no teaching. Now when I say that, like in relation to Christianity, people think I'm, I'm acting the bollocks. Do you know where, where I would say sometimes, I'd be talking enthusiastically about how, how I love Christian tradition, and then I'd say, but I don't really believe it. And they'd say, no, you're acting the fucking bollocks. But, but I'm not really, because it's like, nothing is really true in the way that we grip the truth. That's all. So, I don't know what the question was at this stage. <laughs> I got lost. <laughs> when you say grip in there, is that what the Buddhists refer to as attachment? Yeah. 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 And the ultimate is that you get attached to the idea of Buddha, ah, about meditation. Yeah. My, my, my teacher would always say that the word meditation in Tibetan is a dumb. Dom means familiarity with. Oh, so so it, it's amazing how things get changed in translation. That, that meditation is, is being with something. So, mm -hmm. so you could be with 
a single beautiful concept, analytical meditation, let's say in Buddhism, you know, a concept of, of compassion. But, but you're really at a very intellectual level of, of meditation. So you're, you're, you know, you're meditating anal analytically. Mm -hmm. the, the other way to do it in Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism, is what they call compassion. Mm -hmm. And that is to actually really meditate in a compassionate way. So, so I think for somebody, somebody I don't like, there's somebody in my life that I really don't like. I feel it's obviously their fault and they did things wrong to me and they're a bollocks. Yeah, I, 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 that's what I think. But it, 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 it leaves me with a hardness, the yeah. fucker. If I hear his name mentioned, right? Now you try, you try be with that person as like being present with you there. And try thinking of your heart, seeing with the eye of your heart and wishing everything of happiness for him tonight. Now that's it's hard work. That's compassionate meditation. Yeah. Do you know something? It's very, what I do it's is very I therapeutic. It's very babies. good. If I have someone like that who I'm angry with, I imagine him as a baby, as a wonderful, gorgeous, yeah. beautiful baby. Yeah. Which they were at one point, and they were just gorgeous fucking babies. Going, everything's amazing, isn't everything brilliant? I'm a baby. Yeah. I know nothing other than happiness. And we were all that. Yeah. And then you get, you know, you get pain, you get rejection, you get yeah. all these things, and you become a goal. Yeah. And, <laughs> but like everyone is still that gorgeous little baby. So if I'm, like I know myself, if I fucking hang on to a resentment, that's going to come back on me as well. I, oh, yeah. it, it will come back as an unhappiness. Yeah. So I always try and work on resentment and I always try and use resentment as, um, there's an opportunity for me to learn something about myself. If I'm resenting a person, yeah. what, what is the anger and what, what is, where's the threat to me, to my self-esteem, yeah. my sense of self? And how can I use <coughs> compassion, love, forgiveness, uh, recognizing that person's fallibility, the fallibility that we all have as humans, yeah. to then notice it. That's the word I take from meditation. When I meditate and I think if I feel anger, I don't react to it, yeah. I notice the anger. The way that I'd notice a cloud or a fucking leaf floating down a stream or a can of coke getting yeah. kicked down the road, I notice it. Yeah. So th that's, that's what I try and do with noticing my emotions, not reacting to them. Yeah. I, I think, let me just go, f are we okay here? Yeah, we're grand. L let me just go further from that because, you see, when you, when you start to do that, that that your your meditation is is kind of in some way healing because it's unblocking you. Then the time doesn't matter. Do you know that the slots that the, if if you think, well, that guy does half an hour meditation morning and evening. Yeah. I can't do that, so I'm no good. That's the only place you'll end up. Whereas to realize it's it's just familiarity with it's something like that comes into your mind and goes out of your mind. It's like it's like if I say this to you now, that there is nothing inside you but God, then you can never get away from that. So it's like you, you don't even have to make an effort to meditate. And, I mean, in fact, the only way to practice meditation is to practice not doing everything else. And, and then you're meditating. Mm -hmm. and, and then that consciousness of heart, the river of anger, the river of resentment, mm -hmm very often that you validly hold, you, you really validly hold, this is an abuse that somebody did to me. Mm -hmm. And the, the great person on this, to me, is the English poet Lem Sisset. 
Oh, yeah, he's class. Wow, he's yeah. so wonderful. He quotes the Buddha on this issue, and he says, quoting the Buddha, that anger is the only poison you drink yourself and expect it to kill your enemy. <laughs> yeah. It's from the, one of the Buddha Sutras, you know? So, so meditation, it, from my teacher, became this sort of kind of thing of, of just living your life, freeing you from even concepts of, you know, I should be doing this and I should mm -hmm. be doing that. Mm -hmm. that. That, again, to go Islam about it, there's a beautiful thing. When I walk towards God, God runs towards me. Mm -hmm. that, that once you turn, there's some presence or energy already there. You're already getting support, right? So, so that means like that meditation is something that it almost will come to you to your fingertips in the morning. Mm -hmm. You just let go of other stuff and you'll begin to notice it. You'll begin to notice there's something there with you all the time. It's not you trying to grip it and say, I must try and get more focused there in my, you know, my, I was wandering off. You'll hear people saying they'll go to a meditation session and say, I was wandering off after three minutes. But sure, that's okay. Because even wandering off, what you wandered off to is God. Everything is God. It's, it's kind of everywhere. It's like in the air. You can't get rid of it. But we do an awful lot of effort in 70 years trying to get rid of it, trying to ignore it. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we fill it with the wounds and the hurts that we have and we say, well, I'm, I'm justified in feeling like this. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you may be in fine, but if you, if you keep drinking that poison, it will damage you. Mm -hmm. And the alternative is just not to, you're not trivializing your own wound or your own abuse or your own hurt or your own injustice that you've suffered, but, but you're finding there's something unnameable that every religion seems to touch on about being here now. And, it's in, and so that's why I feel like I don't like talking Christianity because I'm an old man, right? I'm, I'm an old folky. I'm from the last century. And the lives that young people have in Ireland at the moment are on the edge of amazingly new adventures and new ways of imagining community and love and faith and everything, right? And I wouldn't be bringing people back. I'd be saying that my religion tells me, go forward. You will find a new way to imagine the same things because it doesn't change. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, f the first time I met you, it was, it was just before I'd written my first book and you put into my head the idea of, I think I was saying to you, geez, I'm thinking of writing a book. And you go, I find that traveling somewhere, going abroad and getting, you know, putting aside three weeks in a different place is a good way to write. So I said, fuck it, I'll try that. I'm going to head off to Spain and write. Yeah. But you told me a mad story about, uh, you gave me some <laughs> solid advice on Airbnb, actually. <laughs> tell me a story you told me about going to Romania. Did I tell you that? You told yeah. me it, but yeah. I, wa I want you to tell them. <laughs> I, I agree that you need to, as a writer, you know why I said, like, best, best advice for a writer, get a typewriter. You'd say get a laptop now, and just use it, and just put it aside an hour a day and do it, and it will work. Now, the way to do that in a big sense, 
if you're at a kind of a, a turning point in your life, is take three weeks somewhere, get away and do it. There's, there's art centres, but there's also, like, I used to go, I began places like Anna McCarrick, but over the years I used Warsaw a lot. I used to go to Warsaw. I was there before Christmas writing. I go and I get an Airbnb for around maybe 30 euros a night. I have a beautiful apartment that's fully heated in the winter. You wouldn't buy the fucking briquettes where I live. Yeah. You, you, the briquettes would cost you more than the entire apartment, right? I get a 70 euro to 80 euro return flight. It is very, very economical for me, especially when I didn't have much money. And you're alone. You're alone. You can do nothing but write and walk around and have coffees. So one winter, I decided, well, I've been to Warsaw so much, wouldn't it be lovely to go somewhere else? And I decided to, to try out Bucharest. And maybe what got me to Bucharest was that I was getting a romantic notion about uh, Romania would have a very strong theatre tradition. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would be a beautiful place to go. And I saw this apartment, and it was like palatial. It was like something that Putin would be living in. Do you know, it was like... 17th century gilded pillars and all sorts of stuff and fucking big sofas. And it was for like maybe, you know, some ridiculous 15 euros a night. And I says to myself, that's for me, right? And I'll go on the 6th of January, just after Christmas, and I'll have an amazing time in the snow. And so I booked it. And when I had booked it, after about two days, I got an email from the owner who's a manager at a whole lot of apartments in Bucharest, and he said, we're terribly sorry, but that shouldn't have been up on the site because it's already booked for January. And so we, we really like to keep your business, so we'll give you an alternative, which I think you'll actually find is better. And I thought, sometimes good things happen to you, you know. I'd... <laughs> and I, I emailed him back. I said, that's perfectly fine. Forget the other booking. I'll cancel it. Give me the details on this one. And he gave me the details and all the rest of it, and the price and all the rest of it. And off I went. He said at one stage, do you want a lift from the airport? He said, my chauffeur can pick you up. And I thought, you know, it can happen. <laughs> and I went on the 6th of January to, and this is in a book too, by the way, called Talking to Strangers. But I went to Bucharest and I landed and I was waiting at the, there was a little cafe outside in the, where you arrive in the airport. And now it was about minus 25 outside. It was very cold. And I waited a long time until everybody who had come through on the plane was gone home and in their beds, sleeping happily. And I was still there and there was nobody around, maybe a fella going up and down in one of these kind of lawnmowers that cleans the, the stuff, you know, the inside of a hall. And eventually a fella, I saw a fellow in the window, like outside, and he was obviously poor. I thought maybe homeless, maybe desperate. He sees me, he thinks I'm an American, and he's kind of, you know, beardy, like unshaven and, and very blue in the fingers, and it's minus 25, and he's going like that in the window. I'm thinking, oh, fuck. Now, here's, by the way, here's the Buddhist, right? Here's the Buddhist. Fuck, keep him away from me, you know? <laughs> Please don't let him come in, and, and you know, and sure enough, he waddles over to me and he starts to get out and he took out a cigarette package and he opened the cigarette package 
and he showed it to me. And my name was on the cigarette pack. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew this is the chauffeur. <laughs> he brought me into the middle of town, round in circles and snowy streets, till I did not know where I was. At this time I realized it wasn't booking.com. When your man emailed me, we conducted the whole affair on the email with him. So I wasn't on any official site. I had been lured by an anonymous email to Bucharest. <laughs> and we, we parked on a curb waiting for this woman to come who was called Mrs. Alexandria. And Mrs. Alexandria would show me the apartment. And so eventually this woman arrived, a, a, young, a young enough woman, and a young enough woman in long boots and nothing between the top of the boot and the fur coat. <laughs> and a dog on a leash. And she brought me into an old 1950s kind of Stalinist or Ceausescu apartment block. And the, a woman opened the door into an apartment. And I was brought into this room with this woman, like she was ironing clothes in her kitchen in the little apartment. And at the back of the apartment, there was another door. And in that door, they opened the door and I went in. It was kind of straight out of a Stalinist movie from 1950. And they said, that's the apartment. <laughs> and I had no way out. I was kind of hijacked. I was alone in this apartment. If I ever tried to come out of it, I had to get across the woman to get out her door. And I didn't know where I was. And Mrs. Alexandria said, we'll be back tomorrow for the cash. <laughs> There's no end to that story except like I, I ran like fuck up the road. <laughs> that was my podcast with the wonderful Michael Harding. I'll catch you all next week for a little hot take when I'm back from Porto. And hopefully I'll have written a bunch of shit in Porto. Dog bless. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 